If you would, please open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14, where we pick right back up where we begin. Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. In chapter 14, Abram, soon we'll get there where he turns into Abraham and God changes his name. But right now, Abram, and I sometimes say Abraham, so if I go flipping back and forth, don't, don't mind me. I just, you know what I'm, you're tracking with when I say Abraham versus Abram. He was a man of faith. And a man of faith will be challenged. A woman of faith will be tested. And those challenges, those tests will come. And they come in all times of life. They will come in all times of, of roles you find yourself in. As a young adult going through high school. Yes, I'm out of high school. By God's grace, I made it through. And then you find yourself, what I'm going to do next? <laughs> and the story continues, and it never ends. And then after your kids are grown and everything's going, and it's still tests come. It's usually that <laughs> the body starts wearing out, and that's usually what comes to light is that the body starts falling apart. But whatever the test and the, t and the challenge may be where you find yourself, we're going to see a man named Abram that was challenged and tested in his different roles. And he's going to have victory over some of these situations he finds himself in. But not only does he have victory, but he has victory in such a wide variety of his life that it should encourage you and I today that God is the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore is right there with you through each one of those challenges. Regardless of how we feel, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what people say and don't say and do and don't do, and those who are faithful and who are not faithful, go on and on and on in our list, right? The bottom line is God is faithful, and God is powerful, and God is going to do a work in your life, and he's going to do it, and he's going to do it through you if you just let him. Amen? Okay. Now I think I'm in the role already. Here we go. So let's start here. Genesis chapter 14. Verse 1. Now, have, have mercy on me with these names as we get through these names, because it's not about the names. But I'll, I will butcher them as best I can, and, uh, and you can go with the, you know, the correct name if you know it. And it came to pass in the days of Ambrophel, king of Sinar, Ariok, king of Elisar. I practiced this one. Kedor Leomer, Kedalonor, king of Elam, and Tiddle, king of nations. That they made war with Bara, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Sinab, king of Adamah, Simabur, a king of Zebulun, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. All of these joined together in the valley of Sidium, that is the uh, salt sea, or today we refer to it as the Dead Sea, which is in the southern part of Israel. And verse 4, 12 years, 
and you know the scripture, 12 means government. 12 years, there's this formation of, of, of allegiance, as we'll see. They were under the, uh, these, 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 ten, or these five kings were under this uh, government rule of these four kings that were just described here. And they served this, this king, this Kedorlaomer, or Kedorlaomer, and in the 13th year, 13 means rebellion, so in the 13th year, they rebelled. So it's appropriate, 13 years, and they rebelled. That's exactly what happened. I don't know if that sits there and it draws your attention to a 13-year-old uh, teenager who's in the years of a rebellion, but I'm going to tell you, 13 and rebellion is not an uncommon thing here that we see in the Scripture. But here in the very first four verses, we see an effort by four kings from the east, very powerful east kings, invade into the Jordan Valley near the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, that southern part of Israel, and to defeat and put down these smaller nations or forces in that region that we will see here in the next first few verses, 5 through 7, and they will come down in and they're going to plunder. They're going to take and they're going to take not only the, their wealth, their stuff, but they're going to take the people as well. And that's what happens uh, when uh, you see war takes place. And they're going to also take, we will see in verse 12, a key man, which is why God mentions it in the scripture, a man named Lot, the nephew of Abraham. And we'll talk to a little bit why that is, why did he highlight, why does God highlight Lot of all the people that were taken? And it's important for you to make that link. But this section right here records the very first war mentioned in the Bible. This is the place, this is the very first place we, we, it mentions a war, nations against nations. Prime reason is because of Abraham. And Abraham is the key figure or key um, character in our story today because <clears throat> he is part of God's story, his story. Because we've gone through all these formation of nations and watching the people grow and then God has to judge them and comes back in and the population grows again and then they rebel against God with the, the, the building of the Tower of Babel and then God has to come and intervene again. <clears throat> we see these things we've talked about over the last 13 verses or chapters. But we funneled down here last week and this week is down to the man named Abraham. The lineage that the Messiah, the Redeemer, that God promised would come is coming through this lineage. And that's why we're going to start seeing Abraham more narrowed down in our conversation and what Satan comes against God's plan of that redemption for man. So it's not a surprise to see now wars taking place. War is all about, in many respects, uh, unrighteous wars are about greed and taking and pillaging and taking the, the, their stuff and the people and destroying it to get ahead. But we're going to see the contrast between two wars here as well. One that we see here with these four kings coming in to suppress the people and to bring war and take, take the people and take their stuff. But then we're going to see God use Abraham in the midst of this and doing a righteous way of dealing it. But here in the four, first five, um, we see here the, in the 14th year, this guy, this head of the kings here, Catalomar, and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Ephraim of 
Ashtaroth, the Karanim, and the Sisum, and Ham, and Enim of uh, Save of Karathim. And the Horites in the mountains of Assur, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness, and they turned back and came to an Misfet, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalites, uh, Amalekites, and all of the Amorites who dwelt in Hazaron in Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adama, the king of Zebulun, the king of Bala, that is Zor, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidon. Against these kings, these, this Catalomor, uh, king of Elam, and the Tyndall, king of nations, and uh, Amraphel, the king of Sinar, and Erak, uh, king of Elisar, which were the four kings against five. So four kings against five. Here we see there's these four coming down, putting down an uprising within their control, and these five kings are starting to gather together with others, and they're going to war against these four kings because they had enough of these four kings ruling over them. They want to have a self-rule. They want to do their, their own thing. But it's interesting that there's this first war that comes against nation against nations for power and prestige and, and all these things that causes war to even today. But you'll notice that in verse 10, now in the valley of Sidon was full of asphalt pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they, will, then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So we see here, again, the four coming down, the five trying to rise up and get their self together and fight in their own land. But even in their own land, they obviously didn't know their land well enough because it was full of these asphalt pits. And that seems to be an issue and causing some problems with them that hindered them from being able to be successful in fighting back those four kingdoms or those four kings coming down. But we see in the scripture here that that the, they, these four kings were successful in bringing them down. It doesn't say how and why, except maybe the land, these asphalt pits caused some problems in being able to fight them. But they were able to take these people, take the, their stuff, and head north and get away from this area now. But we see in the scripture that he highlights here, God highlights that they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, his nephew. Now, why did Lot get here? How did Lot get here? How did he get in the mix of this? Why did he get in the mix of this? Why is God even highlighting this? Because you should highlight it because they didn't highlight anyone else that was taken except the people. But we see here that Lot was a righteous man, don't forget. He wasn't an evil man. He was a righteous man. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 through 8 tells us he was a righteous man. But his actions that Lot took from the time when he split with Abram, were not right. They were not good, if you remember. He chose to, he had a choice. He had free choice, but he chose to go by sight and not by faith. He chose to go by his desires and not what God's desire was. And so he ended up finding, find himself looking towards Sodom 
and then eventually moving towards Sodom. And eventually we know in the scriptures he actually plans himself and actually houses himself in Sodom. Now he's living in Sodom. There he is oppressed by the city. Oppressed by this city. And the fact that now he's now caught up in the evilness of going on between these evil kingdoms. So it all started when, while in Egypt, if you remember. When Abram made the bad decision taking in his whole tribe and heading down to Egypt. And while down there, Lot had gotten a taste of the world. He enjoyed what Egypt had to offer in that cities. Scripture does not say that Lot ever built an altar, ever worshipped God at all. He never, anywhere in the scriptures so far, he sought after the Lord where he was at. Not like his uncle Abram, not like Uncle Abram. Uncle Abram built altars and worshipped and gave and served and, and God blessed him. But he was just riding along with his uncle's faith. And that should be a warning to us today. That if you're just riding along with your mom and dad's faith and think you have faith in God and you're just riding along with them, you don't be fooled. If you're riding along because your uncle, your grandma, grandpa has faith and, and they've kind of got you to go to church and, 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 and got you to go because they, out of, your, out of no desire for you to want to go, you could have taken and leave it. But mom and dad so faithfully said, no, you're coming. And while you're under my household, I'm responsible and you're coming to church. That's, there's no negotiations there. i got to be faithful to God and God says, I'm supposed to raise you up. Now, once you're out under, from under my roof, then that's your decision. You're an adult. You have to make your own decision. But while you're under my roof and my leadership, you're coming to church and you're going to learn of God. See, Lot went along with Abram. Why? Because there was probably some benefits to hanging close to Abram. God was blessing him. He was a wealthy man, as we will see. So there were some benefits there. But when they came to a point where God had to, to in, in, intervene here and separate those two, and Lot says, great, I've got all of them. I've got wealth now, too, from all this relationship with Abram. Now I get to go live my life. And he started making bad choices and choosing to live for the world and not to seek after God and the things of God. And that is why Abram is now finds himself in slavery, a prisoner, a prisoner of war, because he chose to make a decision years prior that I wanted the fine life of, that has to offer. I want that lifestyle. And that ended up causing him major problems, as we can see, prisoner of war. We know that Abram was a friend of God, James 2.23. But we also know Lot was a friend of the world, James 4.4. 4. Lot conformed to the world that is described in Romans 12.2. When Sodom lost the war, Lot was condemned with the world. We see that happens and we see that uh, a warning to us in 1 Corinthians 11.32. So if you identify with the world and you want the desires and the things of this world, then you are aligning yourself with the world and you will suffer the consequences that comes to that world. 
You will reap what you sow. You will, you, will, you will be caught up. That's why as parents, we're always warning kids, be careful of who you associate with. Because you might be walking just fine, but if you're sitting there associating with people who are not, you are still caught up with it because you're part of the association. And it's a warning for all of us who we keep company and fellowship with. Lot got caught up, and now he's suffering. But God has a reason for this. God is going to use this Lot's captivity to discipline him and to remind him that he had no business living in Sodom. No reason. And there's consequences. Now we see here in verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew. Ah, make note, this is the first time we see the word Hebrew in Scripture. For he dwelt by the Terebith trees of Mamre, and the, the Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. So it's interesting, in verse 13, we see some more interesting dynamics here. That during the war, someone was able to escape and not be captive and taken, and taken out of the area, but was able to get away. And for some reason, they felt driven to go to Abram, the Hebrew. Hebrew means set apart or passed over, meaning that it's, it's, he's, he's, it wasn't part of that world system there. He was separate and distinct. And, some, and God obviously took this person and said, go to Abram and let him know that Lot was taken prisoner. And you'll notice here that during a period of time of Abram settling into this area, that he formed an alliance, allies, in that area. There were Amorites, or brothers, and you see three brothers, Amorite brothers, that formed a relationship with Abram here. Yes, Abram was a pilgrim. He was passing through. He stayed in a tent. He, didn't, he, he was living for God, and he knew this is what God called him to be. But still, he was in a community that he had to work with in regards to um, daily life. But what you'll find here, because he's a pilgrim, because he's separate, because he, God has called him to do something, doesn't mean he's is not attached in some way to understanding of what's going on and what's affecting him within his community and getting involved, as we will see. See, believers uh, must not ever compromise with the unsaved in matters of spiritual walk and ministry. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses, verse 14, all the way through to chapter 7, verse 1. When it comes to spiritual things and the th what God's word says, we do not compromise. Regardless of what the world says and the community you live in. But there are times we must take action within that community, within the realms of the confines of what the scripture says. And sometimes in, in times where humanity is in need, we come and help them. We come alongside and do that. So when there's a major flood, what do we do? Hey, that is, 
that is a heathen place. Let the God flood it. Let them burn it. I'm not doing nothing to help them because they're just terrible people. No. We come in alongside them with, for humanity to help them, to feed them, to clothe them, to, and to house them because they're in time of need. And that's a time for us to share the love of Christ and to share the truth of where they can lean upon during their time of crisis. But here in verse 14, we're going to see Abram was called, and now Abram is going to be tested. What are you going to do, Abram? You now know your, 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 your brother's son, your, your nephew, has been taken captive. What are you going to do? Well, we see here, now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. We don't see any delay whatsoever. There's Abram. He could have sit there and said, Lot, you're going to suffer from the consequences of your decisions. You decided to go to Sodom. You're the one who wanted to go with the world. You're the one living in the lifestyle, and you're the one getting caught up in it. That's not my problem. Why would I put myself at risk? Why would I take and put my people at risk for your stupidity of what the decisions you're making? No, that's, that's, not, what he, that's not what he decided. He understood that family and to help those who may have made mistakes, you may have to go and rescue them to be able to minister to them, to encourage them to come back to the things of God, to back to the ways he understood. So Abram is obviously very rich because you just don't have 318 trained men ready to go to war. So you're talking, he's over a couple of thousand probably by the time he had the wives of these men and their children and all this. He had a big tribe that he was overseeing. But he understood that he had an alliance and he also understood that he needed to train these men because God had given him wisdom. There was going to be a time where he's going to have to protect his assets or protect what God has given him from those who are evil who would love to come and to pilgrimage from him. You, he was defending himself. So many times Christians say, you don't defend yourself. No, you, you have to be wise. You have to defend yourself. As God leads. And so here we see Abram says and knows that God is being uh, uh, in, involved in this and says he gets his 318 and he goes 120 to about 140 miles to, to Dan, which is on the border of, of Israel there. He's traveling quite a distance with these people to go to battle, to go to war. He didn't get involved in the war while the four kings came down. He stayed out of it. But once his family was involved, once it turned and went from, you know, now you're involving something that affects my family, now he's engaged. And he's ready and prepared to deal with this. And here he goes. He goes up there, and he goes up there to, to be able to deal with the, the, the issues of the kings that are up there who took Lot and all of his people and everybody, everything else. But verse 15, he says, he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is, in north, is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom, Barah, uh, went out to meet, uh, to meet him 
at the valley of Shiva, or Shiva, or Shui, Shui, I think it is. That is the king's valley. And after his return from the defeat of Kedor Leomer and the kings who were with him, we see here God giving Abram wisdom. There's four kings. There's four armies. They're obviously trained. They overcame and pushed back five kings' worth of, of armies. We're not talking huge armies. They're, they're just these, these, these tribe of armies. You know, we're talking thousands upon thousands here. But they're, they're still, the numbers are against Abram. And here he is. He's going by faith. He knows God is obviously directing him. And God gives him wisdom to go up there. And because of size, he goes in by night so they can't see how big he is. They can't see him. They don't know how big and who's coming against them. It could be the, the five kings coming up against them and trying to get this stuff back, whatever it is. But we know that God says, divide your forces by night and they'll be like a surrounding so they can't see who you are and how many there is. But it was successful in God's wisdom he gave him and they pushed him to a point where they started realizing, uh-oh, what is going on here? And they took off running and here we see that uh, Abram and his, uh, uh, you know, his, his, his force starts chasing him to the north of Damascus, which is another hundred miles. So you can imagine the camels and you can imagine the foot soldiers or the, you know, the servants are just chasing him 120, 140, go into war by night and then chasing him another hundred miles. God gave them strength to go and do his work. Against all odds. And he was successful. Because God is successful. When God's in it, it will be successful. And what happens is now he brings back Lot. He brings back the people. He brings back the, the wealth that they took and brings them back. And probably even more from the actual kings. Because you get to, uh, the spoils of war, you get to get more than what you had. He comes back and sure, sure enough, verse 17, the king of Sodom... Bara, an evil man, a perverse man. We know the stories. We know the history of these cities. And he comes down and wants to see Abram. Well, can you imagine the conversation taking place with Abram and Lot on the way back? We don't have any details of what that conversation was, but can you imagine the conversation? And if you were a prisoner of war, and you were just, just whatever they did to him in, in time of this war, and enslaving him and bringing him north, and you having flashbacks, how did this happen to me? And you're sitting there going, because I'm in, <laughs> I'm in Sodom, I'm living in Sodom, I got caught up in all of this. And you imagine the conversation, you would think, what happened to Lot then, wouldn't there be a changed life if he sit there and go, Lord, 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 please, 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 please. If you get me out of this, I will give you my life. You've never said that, have you? Oh, God, 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 please, 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 please. If you just, I screwed up here, and if you just let me out of this one, I. Well, we know by history, Lot went right back to Sodom. 
and didn't learn. The discipline of God did not teach him to change his life. That is a very, very hard heart. When you so desire the things of the world and the things that it offers, that it clouds your decisions of what God wants you to do, watch out. You're spiraling down and you're going to hit rock bottom. I would think prisoner of war would be a rock bottom moment, but not obviously for Lot. It sounds like he has to go deeper. So then what happened in 18? Then Melchizedek. So we had the king of Sodom show up. Not a good man. Now we see another, verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Adam of God of most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. So we see here a very interesting character popping up in our story here. We have no idea where Melchizedek came from, how he came to be in Canaan, how he came to be a worshiper and priest of the true God, or how Abram came to know about him. We only know he was there and he showed up to meet with Abram when he returned from war. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And he is the king of Salem, Salem meaning peace. Salem was the original Jerusalem. So here Melchizedek was the priest of the most high God. He was a worshiper of a God in, in a place of peace that uh, we original uh, Jerusalem. And we can see that not only is he a priest, but he is also a king. Which is interesting if you understand the Old Testament and the scriptures. That was not to happen. And later on, we do see that not happening anywhere. You can be a priest, but not a king. You can be a king and not a priest. Jesus is the only one who is a prophet, priest, and king. But we see in the scriptures here, one of the uniqueness about Melchizedek is the fact that he is both king and priest. And it's dangerous for a king to even think about wanting to be a priest. Ask King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles in chapter 26, verse 16, 23. We find here that King Uzziah tried to do the work of the priest. And what happened? God struck him with leprosy. That's why God as many times separates the, the civil responsibilities from the uh, religious responsibilities. Melchizedek, priest of the most high God. In the, the Hebrew is El Elyon, meaning highest, highest God. Or another way of saying that is supreme being. That doesn't give you or I or anyone else the ability to say, oh, then that means we should then worship a higher power. No, no. We should be worshiping the highest power. That is Jesus Christ and him and him alone. 
So we have to be careful and watch as we look through here. But Melchizedek, first thing he does is he doesn't come out and look for anything from Abram. The first thing he does is he gives to Abram bread and wine. Take note of that. Where else do we see bread and wine? The communion table. And we will see that perhaps even when Melchizedek came, he served them in a manner looking forward to our redeeming sacrifice. As bread and wine of Passover in the Lord's table, as we look for the redeeming sacrifice of Jesus Christ 2,000 years later. If we see here, here Melchizedek shows up. He disappears from Scripture until he gets to, uh, we see uh, in Psalm 110.4, uh, he pops back up about a thousand years later being used in Scripture as, a, as the order of Melchizedek. And then we see him disappearing and we see him back coming back into Scripture another thousand years later. And we see that referenced in Hebrews and if you go through Hebrews chapter 5 through 7, it's a great read. But Hebrews 7, 3 describes Melchizedek as without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So based on this scripture and based on what we're seeing, many believe that Melchizedek was the actual pre pre-Bethlehem appearance of Jesus Christ. The Christophany in the Old Testament where Jesus appears in, in, in the flesh. But we, can't, we don't know for a fact or for sure, but it's a, certainly a key indication or picture of Jesus right here in the life of this man. And then what we see Abram gave in his response because here we see Melchizedek Blessing Abram, giving him wine and, and, and bread to nourish him, but I think it's is, is a form of worship of showing that you know there's a praising that was going on of what God had done through Abram's life in, in conquering the enemy. But then we see Abram's response by giving back to a, uh, back to Melchizedek a tenth, a ten percent of all of his wealth. Of all of his assets. Again, a form of worship to this man. Interesting. Now, keep in mind here as the story continues, what about the king of Sodom? Well, we see here in verse 21, now the king of Sodom, Bara is his name, said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. The word persons in your Bible, and, and if you know the original Hebrew language, it means souls. <laughs> you can have the stuff. Just give me the souls. The voice of Satan speaking right through the, the king of Sodom. I just want the souls. The stuff just attracts people. You can have the stuff. I just want the souls of the people. So what did Abram do? How did he respond? Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread 
to a sandal strap. And that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only that the young men, the three brothers and the teams there, the Amorites there that joined an alliance with him. says, these young men who have, eat, uh, have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner and uh, Eskol and, and Mamre, let them take their portion. I love this part of the scripture because it teaches a, a few truths, spiritual truths here. The fact that the king of Sodom really only, you know, he wanted the people to use those people and get them back. And he didn't, you know, he was using the stuff and say, hey, Abram, you take the stuff. Let me, it, it, it's, it's a custom for us to give you what you've been able to get back for us. I just want the people. But just prior to that, Abram spent time with Melchizedek. And in somewhere in that time frame, he raised his hand and he swore to God all the most high that he was not going to touch anything. Why? Because Abram, God showed Abram, I do not want anyone to get the glory and the honor for what God has done through my life. God is going to bless me. God is going to take care of me. God is going to, to, to take in and protect me. He's my, 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 not only my provider, but he's also my protector, but he's also my provisioner. And I want no one to get credit for what God is doing in my life. And how many times we see it in the world today. You come and you do this and I get you this. And what do they do? They take credit for your success, what God is doing through your life. And Abraham said, no, 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 no. You're not going to get, I, I'm not going to touch even a thread, let alone your sand. I'm not going to touch nothing because what God is going to do, God gets all the glory and honor. I'm not going to give man any of it. But for the guys here, the Amorites, the who alliance with me, I'm not going to impose my my, what God has shown me, I'm not going to impose on someone else. They went to war. Their mindset, where they are at, yes, they deserve what they, you gave them for food. They deserve it. They, you know, that's, they, they can have that. They can do whatever they want to do with that. They want to, you want to give them a portion? Not a problem. That's between them and their God and then you. I'm not having anything to do with it. I'm not going to impose my beliefs on those men. Because he understood they're not, they, that's, they, they may have gone to war for a different perspective than him. But God was faithful to bring Lot through these tests and these challenges. I mean, bring Abraham, I think I said, right? Bring, bring Abraham through these ch challenges and tests. As Abraham looks over and watches what's going on in Lot's life. As he takes and looks and has to go to war because he has to protect the family. And God used that to be able to push back the ableness. And he did it because that's what God asked him to do, not because Lot deserved it. Not because he was trying to get ahead and, and make some money and, and make a name for himself. Not to, to prove himself. You don't go to war to prove yourself. To have an identity. 
You don't go to war so that you can, some people can look at you like you're something more than you know you really are. You go to war if need be because God has called you to do that to push back evil. And there should be no other reason. And that's why Abraham got involved. <coughs> but we see here, and we continue here in, in chapter 15, verse 1, where we see now a covenant. We saw the victory. Now we see a covenant that God confirms with Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Guess what? Abram was afraid. Wouldn't you be afraid? Wouldn't there be a sense you just came back and you just really messed up four big kings and you brought all their stuff back from them and you were only 318? Can you imagine when the word got out? Now, because Abram is living a nice, quiet life, now he's put himself in a position where God says, okay, you're going to be used as a force to push back evil. Evil is going to come back against you in the fact that you uh, did this. So he has a reason to be afraid. God addresses it. And, and obviously Abram's communicating with the Lord. Because it says right here, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. The word of the Lord came to people in the Bible in many different ways as we see. It might come by a personal appearance of God. By an audible voice, by visions or dreams, or by the ministry of angels, or by the working of the Spirit of God upon the mind of yours. By the making alive of a passage of Scripture come to heart, or by the ministry of a prophet or a preacher. God can, will use his word and speak to you. But it will never conflict with the written word. So don't come to me and say, I got a vision from God. Let me tell you about this vision. I'll listen, but if it conflicts with the word of God, it wasn't from God. Test all things by the word of God. So we see here that God came in to meet Abram's need and because he's now afraid, because he knows the high, high probability is these kings are coming back against him. But what does God say to him? I am your shield. I'm your protector. You don't have to be afraid. I'm your protector. People don't realize how big our father is. Our dad, dad our daddy's big. <laughs> he's all powerful. He's all knowing. And he's everywhere. Nothing gets by him. So he's going to protect you as a child of his. Do you believe that? And he also said to him, exceedingly great reward. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. You don't have to worry and be afraid of these things of what this world will try to come back against you. But how in, in, encouraging that is for you and I as a, ch a child of God. That he is our protector. He also provides for us. And he is always watching over you and I. And then verse 2, but Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer, 
Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So Abram continues to have this honest dialogue with God that says, I know you've given me a promise, but I'm, a, I'm a getting older and older and older here, and I am childless. I go childless here. I'm going to die childless. So what have you been, this promise you've given me and this, 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 this rewards, what are you referring to? And, and he's not doubting. I don't think he's doubting. He's like you and I who says, can you give me a little bit more of a picture of how this is all going to play out? Because I don't see it. You gave me this promise, but I don't see how it's going to get from point A to point B. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's natural human flesh here. Abram's saying, Lord, what will you give me? And so then he leans on his own understanding. He says, I'm looking in my own house here, or people around me, and this guy here, Eliezer, from Damascus, of Damascus, is the one I think is the one you probably want to have be my heir, because I'm childless here. And then Abram said, you have given me no offspring. So it must be, indeed, one born in my house is going to be my heir. I guess that's how it's all going to play out, right, God? But I love the fact that Abram is honest in front of the Lord and just laying out there. Instead of holding in his frustrations of why you don't see how God is going to work this all out. He's not frustrated. And he just bottled up. He just takes it to the Lord and God with just an honest heart. Because there is a difference. You can discern the difference between a doubt that denies God's promise and a doubt that desires God's promise. Here, Abraham desires God's promise that God gave him. He just doesn't know how it's all going to play out. And he's had a little bit moment of leaning on his own understanding. And, okay, God, your good promise is this. But how is that going to work? We've all deal with those things. Do you go to God with an open, honest heart and say, God, I don't doubt your promise. I just desire your promise to just be revealed to me. And behold, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir. It doesn't even name the guy's name. He just says it won't be your heir. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, you, So shall your descendants be. And verse 6, And he, Abram, believed in the Lord. And he, he God, counted it to him for righteousness. So, here he comes, God, honestly, with open heart and honest heart. I, I don't doubt you, but I desire for you to show me how this is all going to work out because I'm going childless here. And I'm trying to look at my own understanding of my household and how it's going to play out. Maybe that's how you're going to do it. I don't know. But then God boldly comes to him. The word of the Lord came to him. Before it was a vision, now the Lord is coming to him saying, This one shall be your heir. It will come from your body. Don't worry. I got this under control. It's going to play out. You may not see it, but it's going to play out just exactly what I said. You're going to have an heir. And then he reinforces it by saying, come here. Get out of here. Let's get outside. Let's look up at the stars. And I'm going to say right here, look now toward heaven and count the stars. 
if you're able. Because you're going to have so many descendants you can't even count them. You have no clue, Abram, but I, let me give you a clue. And he takes him out and he shows him his creation and says, try counting your stars. And Abram right there, he heard the word of God. God revealed it to him, in this case through his creation. And it caused him just to resettle back down in his belief in the Lord. His trust in his Lord. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it's interesting that Abram believed. He believed the Lord. And he was credited to him righteousness. This is the foundational truth of how you're saved. Now keep in mind, Abram wasn't saved at this moment. He was saved back in, in Ur, if you remember, Ur of Chaldees. That's when he got saved. That's when he first put his trust in the Lord. But he is reinforced of his belief in his Lord. That's where he puts his complete trust in, is what, what he, the Lord was going to do, what he, his promises were. So we see the same thing repeated three times in the New Testament. Take note, Romans 4.3. Galatians 3.6 and James 2.23. Romans 4.3, Galatians 3.6 and James 2.23 shows that righteousness is established in return for faith. And I believe God continues through our walk with him. He can brings us back to moments to reestablish and deepen our our faith in him and him alone. And he does that and he reveals that by his word. Because Abram's faith is foundational. Not only the fact that him being saved by faith. But also it's foundational in this Abrahamic covenant that we will see here. It was this covenant that Abram's going to, uh, that God's going to make with Abram, Abraham or Abram that is, is based on the fact that Abram puts his complete trust in who the Lord is. He says in verse 7, Then he, capital H, God said to Abram, him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? He, just, he wants just confirmation. How do I know this, is, this land is mine? I don't have any deeds. I don't have any piece of anything in paper. Because he's still leaning on the fact that he's going by God's word. And he has nothing tangible to grab a hold of, right? That's his struggles right now. He just has God's word. So God said in verse 9, and he said to him, bring me a, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these things, all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. So God said, okay, you need to have proof. Do you need to have something you can tangibly see and know and trust in what I already told you? Fine. You go get these animals 
you get them prepared for a formal ceremony. And they, we know this also took place later on as, as in Jeremiah 34, verse 18 through 20. We see the exact same ceremony taking place later on as well uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Jewish faith here. But here they do, and he cuts them down the middle. He puts them down so the carcasses are together and the legs are sitting out. Well, this half, the legs are going this way, the legs are going this way. And what they did is at that time in Leviticus is in a covenant, you would sacrifice, blood would be shed, and you would walk down between the carcasses <coughs> as you and the other guy reconfirmed your covenant and your agreement, and that was how it was solidified during those days. <coughs> we see God implement this in the very beginning with Abram, but the difference is, is this. As they prepare this, and he is obedient to what God, it's God's instructions, and he lays this all out. Preparing for God to do something that he doesn't even understand why God is doing this right now. That the fact that the Lord made a covenant with Abram. We see here, when God is about to make a covenant with you, that you're going to have opposition from the enemy. And you'll see it, a glimpse of it, amazing, verse 11. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Here's Abram, he's prepared the sacrifice, he's prepared this covenant moment, this thing he doesn't even fully understand, what God's going to do with this. And all of a sudden, the vultures, the birds come, which is, and you know in the scriptures, is, a, is, is not a good thing. <laughs> so he's sitting there going, oh, wait a minute. The vultures are coming down. He shoes them away, but then it gets worse. Verse 12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, now certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they served, I will judge afterward. They shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You, and you sh shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay. Abram, you want to have a little bit bigger picture of what's going to happen? You want to know? Okay, let me give it to you. Let's see if you can handle this. A darkness came upon him. Horror in his dream comes upon him, and God reveals to him that the, your descendants, not only will you have descendants, but they are going to be put into captivity for 400 years as slaves. And we know that. We know the story, do, do we not? So here we are, the birds, like Egypt, are like prey, opposing this covenant that God is about to make with Abram. The enemy is going to come in and try to disrupt that covenant. Remember, it's all about the Redeemer. It's all about Jesus coming. So what's the enemy going to do? They're going to stop this covenant. Vultures start coming. Abraham has to shoo them away. Then he says, your people are going to grow in size, but they're going to go into captivity for 400 years. And we see that in Exodus 12, 40 reference, Galatians 3, 17, talks about 430 years. We see in Genesis 15, 13, in Acts 7, 6, referencing 400 years. 
don't get, they're the same event. It's just that 400 is in the 400 years versus more specifically 430, which we know. It's the same event. It's not a confusion. It's not, it's not uh, conflicting. It's just one's rounding uh, on the number and the other one's more specific coming out. But here we see that, yes, the Israelites were going to be in Egypt during this 400 uh, years of period of time. And we go back and you can read more in Genesis 47 verses 28 through 31. But the time of that deliverance will come where, they, where he references, then they will come out, which means they'll be set free. And you know the story with Moses. See, God is just. And he knows even right down to the specific timing when this all has to play out. And he gives us a glimpse of that in verse 16 where he says, At the fourth generation, yes, they will return. And the reason is, is because the Amorites, is, uh, the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's something had to take place before he would bring his people out uh, of, of that captivity. And God will tolerate their sins until Israel uh, if you remember, I think it was under Joshua, conquered um, Palestine. Uh, yeah, yeah, Joshua canceled, uh, uh, went against and took over Palestine. That all had to take place, if you know the Old Testament, and before God was going to relieve them of that uh, place in Egypt. And then verse 17, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there, ap there appeared a, s a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed through those pieces. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. And then we see in verse 19, 20, and 21, we see a bunch of uh, people, the Amorites and others, the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Canaanites, what goes on and on and on, all the way down the Jebusites. So we see this, this group here that... At sunset, God revealed himself. He, the place was prepared. You see um, Abram in a deep sleep. He sees a picture of the horror of what the place is going to be involved in involving his descendants. And he probably wished he didn't know that at that point in time. But God had revealed it to him, what was going to take place. But at that point, instead of God and Abram going down between those carcasses, God said, this covenant was with me to you. And I will go down the middle. And God revealed himself as a smoking oven and a burning torch. Two elements that were connected with sacrificial ritual in the ancient world as we know. And God says, I am going to be the sacrifice. It's my covenant. And it will be me who is going to keep this. I don't have to worry about or think about or man having to keep that side. It's going to be God's made the finished work. With that covenant with Abram. And we see Jesus went to the cross. No one else can go to the cross. Or have an ability to go to the cross. Jesus Christ was the one who did it. And it's finished. And we see it all the way from here. All the way through Jesus' death and, and, and burial and resurrection here. That God says, I, the Lord, made a covenant with Abram. And to your descendants. This land that I'm describing to you. This great river. It's not the Nile River. But the great river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, this land is going to be yours. 
Now, some believe that it may be a couple of times during the period of, of history in the scriptures that they may have possessed all that land, but Israel had never really possessed the land entirely. But when will they possess the land? When Jesus Christ returns to reign as Messiah, he will rule and reign over it all. And these Canaanite tribes that are listed here in verse 19, 20, and 21 would be deprived of the land later in that uh, conquest. So remember, God's grace. Each covenant that we have seen so far and all the way through is based on God's grace. He made a covenant with fill in the blank. It's him confirming that is, his, that is his doing. That is God's covenants of all grace. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And our works are but evidence of our faith in him, in that covenant. Amen? So for Abram's message here is very clear. Regardless if there's death that's facing you, Suffering, enslavement, bondage, whatever it may be. Abram's descendants would receive the promise that God assured him. And when God gives a promise, and you can trust in his word, then from that point on, all the way through the history of Israel, they can come back to this covenant that God made with Abraham. And said, this will be true. Yes, you'll be in Egypt, but you are going to be brought out of that. Yes, this will happen. Yes, we'll br he's going to bring you through that. Yes, these enemies are going to come after you, but God is going to bring you through it. Nations will surround you at the end times. And, and, and there are going to be powerful armies that are going to come against you at the end times. But guess what's going to happen? God is going to bring them through it. So when you have God's word given you as a promise to you, write it down, hold on to it, because God is going to fulfill his promises to you. You may not understand how he's going to do it, but he will do it. Amen? Amen.